This is OTB Sports Radio. When Matt Busby signed me, I joined a club with three European footballs a year, a World Cup winner. Unbelievable to play with Busby. Matt Busby management was incredible. He picked players like a jigsaw puzzle. He didn't pressurize you. Go out and enjoy yourself. He never swore. Matt Busby never swore. Can you imagine that from a manager today? He never swore. Off the ball, Saturdays from 1 on OTB Sports Radio. Listen live on the OTB Sports app. The OTB Podcast Network. You ain't shit. I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. My fans can be the harshest critics, you know. They often are. A wife is often the harshest critic of her husband. (laughs) I thought I was invincible. That's what you're you're trained to believe as a sports person. There was four million people in Ireland who knew much more about managing (laughs) football teams than I did. When it comes to music, I can spoof it the best. Your sporting career is the best time you'll have, and, you know, you have to hang on to it for as long as your life because everything else is pretty crappy. And this is not lies. Stephen Rochford has never spoken to Jimmy McGinnis in his life. Andrew, welcome back to Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk. John Duggan with you through until 5 o'clock. 53106 is the text number. You can also tweet us at Off the Ball. 1 0 to Liverpool in the Premier League against Newcastle. Mo Salah with a goal the second half is now underway at Anfield. We're streaming the conversation as well now. So you can watch us on the Off the Ball social channels for Periscope on Twitter at Off the Ball, YouTube, Facebook, and on the OTB Sports app. Search OTB Sports in your app store now to download it if you haven't done so already for iOS and Android. This is the Saturday panel. We're reviewing the sporting week. How could you not? Uh, between now and half two with the Virgin Media commentator Dave McIntyre, with the Irish independent sports writer Michael Verney, and with the former Irish basketball team captain and coach Timmy McCarthy. Dave, Michael and Timmy, how are we all getting on? Good, John. Yeah, good, John. Thank you. Good, John. I uh, had to take a few days off work for personal reasons and I came back yesterday and I missed all of this, the 72 hours of madness in world sport and all related to the Super League. So it's just been a, what an incredible story, Dave. We'll just start with you. What is your just your simple takeaway from from what unfolded this week? I don't think there is a simple takeaway, John. To be, yeah. be drawn from what happened over that crazy seventy-two hour window, as you said, it's. I think when we look back at it in a few years' time, it'll go down as one of the great sports stories of our generation. In that. It takes an awful lot in the modern age for people to be as gripped by an unfolding story as we were earlier in the week. I, everybody had probably put it in their diaries to ensure that they had the children cleaned and fed and watered by the time Monday Night Football got up and running on Monday evening so we could all sit down and see what Jamie Carrigan and Gary Neville had to say about it once they'd had, they'd had 24 hours to gather their thoughts. And the game that night just seemed superfluous to everything. And then the manner in which everything then imploded over, what, two or three hours? If you switched off your social media for half an hour, you missed something. Either somebody had stepped down, a club had withdrawn, another club had insisted they were remaining part of the European Super League plans. Um, I found it very interesting that the general sense seemed to be that the fans had won this round, whereas I think that's a little too uh, simple a way to put, of putting it because I really don't think fans are any better off bar the fact that their own domestic leads would have been destroyed by an ESL and they have managed to, to dodge that bullet. Um, but I don't think there'll be any long-term repercussions for the clubs that try to break away. I think the Champions League proposals that have been rammed through almost unbeknownst to us given the distraction of the ESL don't do many clubs many favours. And uh, I think it's very hard to look back on what happened in the last week and feel that anybody really is the winner. That would be my overall take, that, yes, we felt it was a victory for the 
the average fan. It was a victory for people who see sense and who are desperate for the beauty of sport and competition to continue. But it, in reality, it was a week that, that provided nobody with a victory. Um, I was thinking about the contempt that was shown to the managers like Jurgen Klopp and the players of these clubs, lads. And Michael, is there a chance that football would be more equitable, more competitive in the future, that this could be an Occupy Wall Street, a turning point against, uh, as Simon Cooper called it, the neoliberalism of football? Or would you be a bit more uh, of the view that, well, we're just back to where we were 10 days ago? Yeah, probably more like we're back where we were 10 days ago, but you'd hope that, that some lessons will be kind of learned from this. Uh, just reading Aidan Fitzmaurice in the Indo today, just a couple of interesting things. It was almost like five things we can learn or five things that, that football can learn from, from this whole this whole ESL kind of debacle. Uh, just something that Dave said as well, I don't think his story has ever gripped people as much and has moved as much and as quickly. Uh, it was fascinating. I'm not a big soccer fan, but just to see the reaction and see how it moved over 72 hours was fascinating. But just as I said, Aidan Fitz had a couple of really interesting things to say. Just whether whether or not uh, the actions of the, of the last week will affect football. Just say, for example, like, Gambling is everywhere you you look in football, particularly on you know on shirts, uh, sponsorship with teams, uh, the advertisements between between uh, between the action on Sky Sports as well. Uh, that's something that may, potentially maybe that could could be looked at. Uh, the ownership structures as well. I think Aidan just said it was really interesting. Just and I've been to. I've been to games in the, in the German league and Germany kind of taking a step back from everything that happened and the German clubs taking a, taking a step back was, was fascinating. It's such a smart move from them as well. You'd wonder then and you'd hope maybe with other countries maybe start to look at their model a bit more, how accessible games are. Went to see Hertha Berlin play a couple of years ago, just like, I think it was 25, 25 euros to go to a game. Such an unbelievable experience. Great. Uh, with, with great seats, uh, the whole experience is brilliant. You, you look at something like that in England and you could be talking of, you know, you're looking at 60 or 70 pounds at least to get into the cop or anywhere like that. I'm hoping that as a result of, you know, what happened in the last week, that maybe some lessons will be learned. Maybe I'm being a, an optimist there and maybe, you know, people have just taken it, will, will take a step back for a while and then it will just career down that same path. But I did think, uh, I thought it was really interesting. I don't really watch the Premier League anymore uh, because I don't have access to BT or I don't have access to Sky. And I thought it was hilarious looking in to see that, you know, the, the, the people who were probably given out with the ESL most were, you know, Jamie Carr or Gary Neville and these guys. They're, they're obviously on a platform, i.e. Sky Sports, that has denied the likes of me and millions of other people watching Premier League football unless we're willing to put down a big fee to... to uh, to do that, so I just thought I thought that was interesting itself. I hope lessons will be learned as a result of it, but they, they probably won't be, and I'm probably being far too optimistic there. Timmy, these clubs are in trouble. A lot of them: Barcelona, Real Madrid, Giants. The game, they're in trouble. United, the huge amount of debt, and a lot of that is a big reason why this happened because they can't keep up with the Manchester Cities and the PSGs who have uh, an unlimited bank account. And that's a very good point, John. It's, I mean, this is a business. We've got to understand that football at that level is a business. I wasn't surprised by the ESL. You know, I was surprised by the fact it came out last weekend. But if you look at three of the main drivers of it, are the three Americans who are involved in American sports. And they see sport as entertainment. They see it as a professional business. The NBA, the NFL, you know, um, hockey, etc., the M MLS. So I wasn't surprised that they were the drivers because if you take Gronky or Arsenal, you know, when he became the major shareholder, I think it's about 10 years ago, Arsenal were practically guaranteed to be in the Champions League every year. 
Right now, it's unlikely they've been in Champions League for for a long time. So they're saying to themselves, like, we want to be at the top level. And then you have Real Madrid, who look to be bankrupt, and it looks like that they can't sell the car park again for the 200 million that they allegedly sold for a number of years ago to the uh, Madrid Council. So it is about business, it is about money, but there's no doubt that you know the people driving this wanted to make sure that the Liverpools, the Arsenals, etc., were always in the Champions League. And the Champions League has got diluted over the years, in my opinion, when they broadened it out from the Champions. I think it was great when it was the Champions of Europe played in the Champions League. Now what they're doing, they're extending it, you know, in, in two years' time. And as Dave said, that slipped under the radar because of, of the ESL announcement. I wasn't surprised by the big clubs trying to do something. I think the Germans just sat on the fence and waited to see what happened. I think if it had gone more smoothly, they would have joined in. There's no doubts in that. But it's a business. And, you know, uh, you know, Michael made a point about going to Hertha Berlin and spending 25 quid and, you know, that the Premier Clubs um, in England might do that. They want, you know, the PSG's owners, the Manchester City owners, the Abramovich at Chelsea. The fans want them because they want to spend money to get the best players. So if we have this nostalgic look, you know, um, that money's not going to buy, you know, uh, or be wanted by by fans for their teams. That's not going to happen. If you go back to Liverpool in the 70s and United in the 90s, what they did every year, they topped up their teams every year to make sure that they were, they kept winning. And you top it up by spending money. What's happening now with City, PSG and Chelsea in the recent past is that they're just spending, you know, more money from, from their owner's point of view. So... I wasn't surprised by it. I do believe that it is dead in the water for a period of time. But things have a habit of coming back around again. And, you know, Dave's point about the fans, I'm not sure that the fans outbreak. You know, I was, I'm was i a Chelsea fan, so I was watching Chelsea Tuesday night when the fans were protesting and then Chelsea issued a statement to say they were pulling out. Chelsea seemed to have been one of the clubs like Spurs who were saying, well, we better be in it if we're going to be in it. But there's no doubt that the fans want owners who can spend money. So Liverpool want Henry to spend money. United want Glazer to spend money. You know, Spurs want Levy to spend money. Chelsea want Abramage. All the fans want to spend money to get the best players to win titles. And if we say anything else uh, as fans, we're being probably hypocritical. Dave, you've got a lot of Champions League games around Europe with Virgin Media. Is this too far gone? Can football be brought back in any way and, and equalised in your view? It's very difficult to envisage a day where there is the level of equality that we may have seen in you know previous generations, 60s, 70s and 80s. But I, I mean, the, the point Timmy made about a potential for the Champions League or the old European Cup to revert to what it once was, where you just have the champions. I Personally, I wouldn't want that either, because the problem with that is that you could have potentially a Bayern Munich or winning the the Bundesliga title every season and we would never see a Dortmund or an Orby Leipzig or a Leverkusen or a Schalke as we have in previous seasons playing in the Champions League look what West West Ham could potentially achieve over the next month I mean their story I think is incredible with David Moyes and everything this season that it means the Premier League is incredibly competitive outside of the race for the title and if you were to deny the Premier League and the other top leagues in Europe that it, it would lose an awful lot of its luster as well there is a level of equality, I think, that goes a little under the radar. And this isn't probably the most popular opinion. But I do look at a league like the Premier League, for example. And any club, given a little bit of a boost to a certain extent to their finances, can aspire to play in the European Cup. If you go back to the old days, that really is not the case. I mean, a West Ham 
could never really aspire to be playing in the European Cup, a Leicester City, um, uh, an Everton even, given where they are at the moment. And yet now we are heading into the final few weeks of the season and you've got seven or eight clubs still in with the shout of playing in the Champions League group stage next season. I personally think that is a good thing. And that if you were, you were to revert to that, how the system used to operate back when we were kids, it's it's a similar debate to those who look back at the old football and hurling championships, which is straight knockout. And they saw what happened last season with Cavan and Tipperary winning provincial titles and saying, putting forward an argument for this is how we should return to it. The structures in the football and the hurling championships were changed for a reason. Now, the main reason driving the change in the European Cup was money. I get that, and Timmy's spot on as regards that. But I don't think I would like to go back to a competition which merely introduces the champions. There are 55 member nations in UEFA. I don't want to see the, the San Marino champions and the Macedonian champions and the Hungarian champions playing regularly in the European Cup in a game that I would have absolutely no interest in watching. Um, I'm, I think the Champions League is a great competition. Sometimes the group stages can be a little bit tedious, but there are plenty of groups a couple of times each season where you're looking at it and there are three or four clubs that could potentially believe they can get out of the group. And the knockout stages are a beauty. They are a joy to behold pretty much every season. Not everything is right with it. There's a lot wrong with it. And the changes that have been driven through by away from the last week will further add to the inequality. I accept that. But I don't think we should, we should all be looking back to 20, 25 years ago and think that just because Bruges or Frankfurt, Eintracht Frankfurt or Hamburg had an opportunity to get to a semi-final or a final, that all was well back then. Because the game has moved on so much, you're pretty much denying a Borussia Dortmund any chance of ever playing in the European Cup if you're to go back to the champions only. PSG with all the money in France, I know this year's French league is a little bit of an outlier because there are four or five teams in with a shout of winning that. But generally over the last decade, Nobody would get to play a French club outside of PSG in the European Cup. We have to go back to type and the way things were 30 years ago. It's uh, funny, Timmy, isn't it, when Jose Mourinho was very much small print, <laughs> having been sacked in his managerial career at the elite level, probably over now. Yeah, I'm, and I saw Mourinho. I was actually that Chelsea um, season ticket holder when he came in the first year. He was phenomenal. I mean, he brought 4-3-3 to England. You know, he was expansive in the first couple of years at Chelsea. Um and really, over the last sort of seven or eight years, maybe ten years, he's lost his way. He's just, you know, he's got more defensive-minded. You know, he's he was always self-centered. I mean, you know, he called himself the special one when he arrived in London. Um, but I do believe that he's finished at the top level as regards, particularly in England, because he's been around the block now at this stage. He's been with Chelsea, he's been with United, uh, he's been with Spurs, obviously. And you know, he he wants a team that's going to spend money. You know, Marina wants a team that's going to spend money. So, it, what was fascinating was the fact that in the week that Marina got sacked, it was like you know, like nobody's news. Nobody was really interested, and it was huge news when you think about it. Getting sacked the week before a final for a manager who has a huge success in winning trophies is incredible. And I do believe that, you know, his his he's not finished in football. You know, somebody will pick Mourinho up. But as regards the premiership and and the top clubs around Europe, I do believe that at the very elite level that he's finished. And that's a sad thing because I still believe that Mourinho has an awful lot in the locker. Sadly, at times, he's just lost the use of it. Um, particularly defensively in the last couple of years. He's just become exceptionally defensive, which was a real transition from when he played, uh, when he managed Chelsea in, in uh, 05 and 06. Yeah, we talk about the great managers like Brian Cody and Hurling or uh, 
Jim Gavin went out of the top, Michael. But Jose, it's just it's been a it's been a long time coming through Chelsea the second time round through United and now Spurs that it's really just petered out from and probably the only place he's going to be able to go now is Portugal as an international manager. Yeah, it's probably just a failure to adapt uh, adapt your ways to you know modern times. His his methods were unbelievably successful, particularly obviously with Porto, Inter, and Chelsea. And then I just I just don't know if he adapted and kind of modernised with the changes in football that were taking place around him. And as uh, as Timmy says there, he he seemed to get more and more defensive and more and more negative as things went on. The he will be he will be missed particularly in the Premier League from the personality point of view. Just just what what he brings to the table. Um, it's just those little sound bites, those little nuggets that are highly, highly entertaining and quite off the wall as well. But I just don't think he adapted to how football was changing around him. And you know the idea of the idea of parking the bus or whatever that just it hasn't he just hasn't developed. He hasn't kind of uh, upskilled and changed as things were changing around him. And he's probably been left behind as a result of that. International management would definitely be something that he could probably go into. And maybe, I know, I think, I was reading that, I think Celtic have been in touch and other clubs have been in touch with him. But it's probably going to be somewhere uh, a small bit away from the spotlight that he's used to. But I definitely think he's he's got lots of time left in football. It will just probably be in, in different arenas maybe that he hasn't been seen in before. Okay, we've got about 90 seconds to the ads, uh, Dave. Will you miss Jose? Um, I do miss Jose when he's not involved in Premier League football, yes. But I, I would disagree with uh, Timmy and Michael in that I don't think there's anything left in Jose's locker. His appointment at Tottenham and the eventual demise was as predictable as any managerial role that I can recall. The day he got the Tottenham job, I foresaw exactly how it was going to end. It was just a matter of time because when he left Old Trafford, the place was poisonous, absolutely toxic. And that was what allowed them enjoy such a bounce in the opening few weeks of Olegon of Solskjaer's reign. And once Daniel Levy brought Mourinho in, I just thought this was only going to go one way in an even shorter time than it had done in his second term at Chelsea and at Manchester United. And his refusal to adapt and to be flexible in the last decade has cost him. Uh, I don't know what Jose has got left, if anything, unless he's willing to look in the mirror and change his entire outlook on the game. Okay, we got to take a break. Go on. He'll always be in demand. A guy that has that success will always be in demand in some field or another. He might not have that much to offer, but he'd definitely be in demand, probably just away from the spotlight. Like Roy Keane in the Sky Studio. Uh, Michael, Michael Verney, Dave McIntyre and Timmy McCarthy. 53106 for your texts uh, on uh, everything in the world of sport from the last week. I've got Ronan O'Gara to talk about, the GA fixtures as well, and the world snooker after the break. This is Off the Ball Saturday on News Talk. We're back after this. The Saturday panel on Off the Ball. This is Off the Ball Saturday on News Talk. John Duggan with you through until five o'clock. You can text us on 53106 or tweet us at Off the Ball. Still Liverpool won Newcastle nil in the Premier League with 74 minutes on the watch at Anfield. Mo Salah scoring early doors in the Championship. It is Bournemouth nil, Brentford nil. Good news that Ireland have finished third in the Women's Six Nations in association with Guinness. A 25 points to five victory over Italy at Energia Park in Donnybrook. Amy Lee Murphy-Crow new into the team scoring twice uh, today for tries. Uh, Dorothy Wall and Kleena Maloney also touching down. So great win for Adam Griggs' team. Uh, the Saturday panel is reviewing the week. What a crazy week with that Super League uh, drama. 
and then we'd uh, Josie Mourinho being sacked and we've discussed that with uh, Virgin Media commentator Dave McIntyre the Irish independent sports writer Michael Verney and the former Irish basketball team captain and coach Timmy McCarthy just some of your texts on it uh, 53106 all Mourinho wants is ready-made players he never brought young players through he had De Bruyne and Salah Chelsea. he never played them he failed to bring them on says Declan lads you can't compare this unique season to any other just because West Ham Villa Everton etc all performing well above anyone's usual expectations this year doesn't mean it'll be repeated when the crowds come back and the players that crack under pressure one of the reasons they're not at the big clubs are relied upon the Super League already exists in the smaller guys in England it's called the Premier League a carve up between the top six or seven and the rest are making up the numbers says Noel Hamburg, Celtic, Villa Nottingham Forest, Dowa Red Star, Feyenoord and Marseille they all won their European Cup as champions says one of our textures and lads there must be a competition where the Uniteds and the Madrids meet more than once uh, every two or three years on 53106 you can also watch us as well as listening on News Talk on the social channels for Off the Ball for Periscope on uh, Twitter at Off the Ball YouTube, Facebook and on the OTB Sports app the return of Intercounty GAA are you excited folks um, I'm looking at the structure here uh, May hurling Saturday May the 8th followed by football one week later regional divisions in football in the leagues then the football championship a knockout format uh, as was the case last year the hurling championship 11 competing counties a backdoor format would it not be better Michael Verney to have no league matches and more championship games uh, I'd agree to an extent John yeah in the year that's in it um, I may be thinking I was chatting to the former uh, Walford manager, Hurling manager, Park Fanning a couple of weeks ago and he thought maybe that they could have been a bit more creative and maybe merged league and championship. Uh, this year's league, while it's great to have games back and I, I can't wait to get back on to games, I can't wait to see games and have something to, as I said, something to preview almost every Thursday and Friday and something to review every Monday and Tuesday and then that just keeps rolling on and it's going to be great. But like, this this year's league, you'd, ha- you'd have to wonder, you know, what, you know, how much is it? How much is it really worth? It's it's basically like re- a race course gallop. It's it's preparation solely for championship, given how close the proximity of the league is with championship. So I think there was potentially an opportunity to be a lot more creative and make sure that the games that they were playing are really really meaningful games and that they're going to have some sort of an effect on a championship. Maybe you could have played. Uh, it could potentially have been maybe like what Kilkenny do in there. They basically blend their league and championship uh, for the club championship. Something like that where the league games are going to have an effect on championship. Only for the year that's in it because that's the way we are. And we're probably a bit caught on time. But the club has probably been... Uh, uh, you know, served a bit short at the end of the inter-county season then as a result. And I know chatting to various you know club managers and club players maybe think that there's no need for five rounds of, would say, a hurling league because, you know, ex- exactly what are those games worth? It's essentially just, given how close it is to championship, it's just solely preparation for championship. And uh, it's, uh, you know, you, you wonder how kind of, how hard will teams be going in those league games? Because really the only thing, it's the only thing that matters any year but really this year, championship is the only thing that matters. Now saying that, I can't wait to get back onto the games and I can't wait to have something to discuss and something to something to digest every week. The Maybe there are sponsorship and broadcast reasons why the, the leagues have to be maintained. But Timmy, yeah, sure. The only, thing, the only thing I'll say about yeah. that is, John, yeah, like you, you could still potentially have a league championship and you could still be serving your sponsorship, your sponsors by, do, by doing that. I just thought maybe that there was room to be a small bit more creative. Well, I think there should be a league championship anyway, 
come the future and have the provinces in the spring. That'll be probably another debate for another day. But like, did the care and carry whatsoever uh, to me that they won the league last year? As it, do they even remember that they did? I'm not sure they ever cared and carry any time they won the league because obviously they're focused on the championship. But the league does serve a purpose. And, you know, I mean, as you made a point, there are sponsor or the broadcasting issues and sponsorship issues separate that have to be honoured. But I, I'm in favour of the league being, being, you know, preparation for the championship. I'm in favour of the, the league in its current format in this pandemic year. I'm in, I'm coaching St. Bridges, the current Roscommon Senior um, Club Championship uh, winners. And, you know, it's a big issue for us because we're on a pushback till the end of the year. Where last year we played in advance of the championship. So we kind of got the, the best of it last year. This year we're going to get, obviously, a, a different challenge. But I'm looking forward to seeing it back. I'm looking forward to seeing how Roscommon do, for example, in Division One, how my, my my own county Cork will do in Division Two, you know, um, and I'm just looking forward, and that's in the football, and you know, in the hurling, you know, you have some interesting games like Cork will play Limerick in the Championship, and they they meet each other near the end of the league, so it'll be interesting to see what happens in that. But it's important that we have a league. It's important that the league is competitive. It's important that the league is a building mechanism for the Championship, and the Championship this year in football is knockout again. Dave made a point earlier, you had Tip and Cavan last year winning because of the knockout, but it's not a lock, knockout championship and it won't be one uh, post-COVID. But this year, you know, we'll have a league, we'll have a championship and it's good to, that we'll be able to see them and that people will be able to play in them. That's the most important, I think, that, that they are back in, uh, on our screens and on the fields. I prefer to have seen the round robin and heard in a Leinster and Munster than a league, personally. Dave, though, but you've got the Cavan roots, you've got those links. Um, so were you all refreshed from last year, given it was a knockout last year? Was it the best thing that ever happened in ways? Um, yeah, I think it certainly gave counties like Tip and Cavan, for example, an opportunity to maybe go a bit deeper into their provincial championships. I mean, a lot of the stuffing has been knocked out of Cavan football folk because, unfortunately, they've been drawn in the first round of the Ulster Championship against Tyrone. And in my lifetime, I don't think Cavan have beaten Tyrone in the championship. They are very much the nemesis of Cavan football. So I guess Cavan, if they really want to show that they were full merit for their provincial win last season and going to the All-Ireland semi-final and acquitting themselves pretty well against Dublin at that stage, then maybe they, it is about time that they stepped up and they beat Tyrone. Um, I'm really looking forward to the championship. I thought it lit up the winter and I know there was an awful lot of debate around whether or not it should have gone ahead and there was an awful lot of people put a huge amount of effort in and I mean, you have to commend the GA for the manner in which they managed to get the championships done. Sligo were the only team that were unfortunately were lost to the championship due to COVID. And I think it was one of the things that really got people through November and December. And while things are brighter now, literally and metaphorically speaking, the, the championship is still going to be a huge addition to people's lives over the next couple of months. I think it would be very unfair to ask players, particularly in a one-game championship, potentially a straight knockout, to ask them to go straight into the championship without any game preparation. And while the league may not be as prestigious this year and important as it might be if you win it, I think it's hugely important for these players to find where they are, to get them playing together as a team again. Um, if you're throwing someone into an Ulster Championship tie and that's the only game, literally, they're going to play as a county team in 2021, I think that would be terribly unfair on these players. I know I'm specifically speaking about the football championship. There is a backdoor on the hurling. So I think the league, while slightly altering its purpose this year, is still massively important. Have these training breaches been completely forgotten about now at this stage, Uh Michael, Dublin and Monaghan. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say they're completely forgotten about, but the, the, the talk seems to be that for, for most people that there, there's been training going on in very, various counties. Now, I know I know for a fact that in a lot of counties there weren't things going on, but 
I think I think people are far more understanding that just with the way the way things are and how low the transition transmission rates are outside, people were I think far more maybe understanding than than some people had thought when the story broke initially. Listen, they're still breaking rules. They shouldn't have been doing what they're doing. But I think it's probably just time to park that and just focus on the action. The action is coming back. As, as Dave and Timmy said there, it's 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 just some of the juicy kind of real juicy championship games to look forward to. The you know Limerick and Cork in a semi in a semi in a semi final. Um, that's you know, just love. You just love having that to look forward to and having that as a focus of of conversation over the next while. And as the as the two lads said, it did. It it saved the winter for us all last year. It really, it really did. It was something to look forward to every week. It was it was dark at four o'clock most evenings, but there was games in Crow Park or games in Turles or games down in Limerick to look forward to every week. So, I I, I don't think I don't think those training breaches have um have overshadowed or will overshadow the league. And I think. They're they're pretty much forgotten about this stage. The only the only legacy of them is the bans that the managers have been handed down. Whether and maybe you know county's been forced to you know give up home advantage for a couple of games, but I don't think it's going to have much more of an effect than that. Well, Dublin Kerry be brilliant, won't it? In Thurles, uh, no fans, but I remember that in two thousand one was incredible that series in Thurles, which Kerry came through the Morris Fitz point. Um, Ronan O'Gara staying at La Rochelle until twenty twenty four. Timmy, um, what is setting him apart at the moment, do you think? They're in a semi-final of a Champions Cup. Uh, they've never won a major trophy. They're in the running for the top 14. He is making a real name for himself. And then, obviously, that gives us the talking points about Munster in Ireland. But that won't be happening just yet. Well, if we talk about the departure of Jose Mourinho, we're talking about the future of Ron Nogara. Yeah. There's no doubt that what he has done is, has been exceptional. And what I really love about the Nogara story, and it's just not a Corkman praise and other Corkman, is he's learned his trade. You know, he's gone. He went to Racing, and he became. You know, he 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 was a defence coach. You know, he he did some work with the Irish team and a trip to the States as a skills coach, and then he went to obviously to New Zealand, and, and you know, he was um, a backs coach. He's really learned his trade before he went to La Rochelle as the head coach. What I love about O'Gara is his intelligence about rugby. You know, on the field, he was a very intelligent player with Munster and with Ireland, and you know, for many years he dominated you know, um, rugby at the top level, particularly uh, in the European uh, world. But what I really think is brilliant about his adaptation to the coaching and as a former international coach, it's not easy. It's not easy to make that transition from being a player at international level to being a coach. And he's made that. And he's made it because he is a philosophy. I love coaches who are philosophies. His philosophy is keep the ball alive. And he's living or dying by that. I'm not into this plan B rubbish that I hear all people, many people to talk about. You have to have a plan B. I believe you have a, you have to have a philosophy how you're going to play the game, the style you're going to play it. And O'Gara has actually created the philosophy. And what he's doing with La Rochelle, taking a team that really, in, in the French top 14, were kind of nobody's, and he's really made him a powerhouse. Whether the, he will stay the three years, uh, you know, it, it will be a question that we'll, be, we'll see over time. Is he a future Irish coach? There's no doubts in that. He's a future top-class international coach. Whether it is with Ireland or some other country, uh, time will tell in that. But I'm really impressed by, by his journey as a coach and that he has gone through all aspects of the game. And now he's starting to show you know, his intelligence, his philosophy, and he's making a big stamp in rugby at this point in time. I was uh, reading about uh, his 
learning of French and the way he's conversing in French, Dave, and the examiner yesterday, and obviously his family, there's a stability aspect there as well. I'm kind of thinking when I'm hearing Timmy, maybe Munster, is Munster big enough for Ronan O'Gara almost as a coach now? If he succeeds, and you know, these things are fickle, things can change, things can go the other way as well. But if it does go upwards and upwards for the next few years, you're looking at Ireland really, aren't you? I don't think there's ever going to be a question of whether or not Munster's a, bi- a big enough job for Ronan O'Gara because I think in his heart of hearts that is the dream job eventually and I don't think he would ever be in a position in his own mind where he'd look upon the job as not being good enough for him. There will come a day where I think he will be the Munster head coach and I would be very surprised if he doesn't have the chance to take over the reins as Ireland head coach. But one of the one of the key ingredients to his progress to this point, outside of the talent as a coach that Timmy has outlined there, and obviously the pedigree he brings as a player, he seems to have an incredible amount of patience. And we've all chosen our careers, whatever walk of life those listening to us or watching us this afternoon have opted to go down, we can all recall being in a position where you wanted everything to happen for you today. You wanted to be the top of, at the top of your game today. And we may never find this out, maybe in a book in 25, 30 years' time, because I think that's how long he's going to be in coaching circles. I think he'll have an Eddie Jones-type career where into his 60s he'll still be one of the most sought-after coaches in the world. I'd love to get the list of the jobs that Ronan O'Gara has turned down already at the age of 44 because I suspect the La Rochelle coaching job was not the first one that was offered to him I'd love to know if there have been any overtures made by Munster by Ireland by Connacht for example how many premiership clubs have contacted him or his agent and asked would would he be interested in, in joining them and I would think that he has carefully in his own mind masterminded each step along the way. He opted to stay the second year in Crusaders. I'm sure there were offers to leave New Zealand in that second year, but he probably on far less money than he could have got elsewhere, realised that what he was doing was the right thing for the long term. He understood and has a level of self-awareness that he was learning all of the right things from all of the right people. He was happy enough to go to La Rochelle as the understudy, not well, maybe that's the wrong word, but in second in command behind John O'Gibbs. But again, he knew that was the right call for him at the right time. I don't think he can underestimate the support his family, his wife and his children have provided to him because he's asking an awful lot of them and he's been very vocal and public in the manner in which he's just discussed that because he's he's asked him to you know, lead real upheaval in their lives. He's gone from Paris to Canterbury to to um, back to the west coast of France. And I'm sure they're back and forth from Cork in the pre-COVID times as well. But just seems every single step is carefully planned. And if he makes a real success of the La Rochelle job, I think he has then safe put a, a real safety net around his career, whereby if he took the Munster job too early and failed, he could have done long-term significant damages to his credentials as a coach and his opportunities in later years. Same with the Ireland job. You take it too soon and it doesn't go well, you've probably really damaged your chances of a long-lasting coaching career. Where if he wins a top 14 championship or a Heineken Champions Cup to La Rochelle and leaves in three years and goes to do the monster job or the Ireland job and it doesn't go well, he has this incredible bank of success behind him and that will lead him in, leave him in a position where he could probably get a job anywhere else he wants in the world. His patience is flabbergasting for me because he knows that each step he's taken has been the right one and he has been mature enough to turn down and drown out all the noise that's going on in and around him. It's funny, John, because you look at... You look at uh, Mourinho, as you were saying, and there's a guy who doesn't seem to want to learn and adapt anymore. You look at a guy like O'Gara, 
and he has absolutely no problem throwing himself in, you know, to the deep end, going to France and having to learn a new language and how to communicate with people, going to, you know, uh, going to the Crusaders and Christchurch and throwing himself into a completely different environment again, going to back, going back to France again. He he is, doesn't seem to have any issue with um, learning, adapting, wanting to continuously challenge himself. And I do think a lot of this is, as Dave said, he could have went to maybe Munster too early and it could have been uh, just maybe a bit over on or a bit too much for him. But when those opportunities come, uh, be it with Ireland or be it with Munster, he's, he's going to be ready. And I just, I, I'd follow ru rugby reasonably close, but I just think... He draws you in so much. He thinks so deeply about it. He's so honest about it. He's so uh, honest and forthcoming with his views on the game, with his views on dealing with modern-day players. There's a fascinating clip going around. He was on uh, the Good, the Bad and the Rugby podcast just talking about how if he can't get the best out of modern-day players, he sees that, that as a failure in himself as a coach. And I just think it's fascinating. And any coach in any sport or any field could learn so much from him about how open he is to growth. He's, he's a fascinating manager. And it's going to be fascinating, a fascinating coach. And it's going to be fascinating uh, following his journey, as, as Dave said, probably over the next 20 to 25 years. I'm just looking here at the screen. Uh, Newcastle have equalised in stoppage time. Uh, Liverpool won Newcastle one. <laughs> Looks like it's Joe Linton. I think it is who might have scored it. Um... Am I, am I wrong to kind of think that sometimes I, I think Leo Cullen has done an amazing job obviously helped by Stuart Lancaster at Leinster but it seems to be a little bit underplayed in the narrative of rugby discourse Dave am I wrong to kind of think that at times um, I don't think you're wrong in saying that there's it's, a, it's an unusual situation with Leo Cullen because I don't think he'll ever get the credit that he deserves for the job that he's done at Leinster and yet there are always we're always hearing how he doesn't get the credit for what he's done at Leinster. So in some ways, that is in a real attempt to give him the credit that he's due. I think his humility in the manner in which he accepted or indeed maybe encouraged and sought the appointment of Stuart Lancaster has been the key driver behind Leo Cullen's failure to get that credit. Because his first year as Leinster head coach did not go well. I was commentating on a few of those games. I remember being in at the wreck and bath on a really bad day for Leinster, but that was a day where a lot of guys were blooded. I think that might have been Josh van der Fleer's first Heineken Cup start. And we see how some of these players have developed under Leo Cullen. Um, instead of stepping away, or indeed instead of Leinster maybe sacking him, they saw the big picture. They saw where Leo Cullen had the potential to go. And this marriage between himself and... Lancaster, and then the, the following edition of Felipe Contafomi has brought together this world-class coaching team. I Someday we'll learn exactly how much coaching Leo does on the field. But his genius seems to be behind his ability to keep a squad of 50 players happy. I don't know how he's managed to do that. I don't know how he manages the egos of the young guys coming through the school system who are in some ways ready-made professionals and who probably feel that the old dogs need to be put out of pasture and they should be put into the first team immediately. He has to manage the ego of the old stagers, the Lions, the guys who've got the 60-70 Ireland caps, and they feel that they've a lot more left in the tank and they should be playing every week. I think this weekend they'll play their 58th player across this season, which is just an astonishing situation. Therein lies Leo Cullen's genius. I don't think we'll find out for a few years exactly how good a coach he is on the field, but I suspect he's doing more than he gets credit for. I suspect that the players are 
believing in his skills as a coach more than we hear. Um, but overall, you're right. He doesn't get the credit he deserves, and perhaps he may never get it. But then again, John, I don't think he's the sort of individual that strives for that. I don't think Leo Cullen really cares how much credit he gets. He's an incredibly level-headed guy, incredibly mature guy, and he knows that he's doing a very good job, I suspect. And who says what about him is probably not of much consequence to him. I'm um, just trying to make sense of what's happened here, guys. Uh, VAR ruled out it was Callum Wilson who put the ball into the net. It was ruled out for a handball. But Joe Willock has just scored to make it Liverpool 1, Newcastle 1. I'm always a little bit uh, wary with VAR that we're going to have to wait a little bit. But Joe Willock, again, again, he's done it. Did it against Spurs, did it against West Ham. And now he's equalised for Newcastle. 95 minutes and 29 seconds on the watch. There was only four minutes uh, allocated for uh, injury time, which would have been taken up by that VAR decision around Callum Wilson. But uh, Joe Willock has whipped it in and it's 1-1 now between Liverpool and Newcastle. If that changes, listeners, I'll let you know because it's always subject to change. But incredible drama at Anfield. Um, bit of drama last night as well, Timmy, with the World Snooker Championship and Ronnie O'Sullivan getting knocked out. Uh, do you enjoy the, the, the Battle of the Bays at the Crucible every year at Sheffield? Yeah, I really enjoy it. Um, I, I suppose that my my favourite moments actually were Stephen Hendry. You know his journey because again, you know what what he did coming on the scene as a 21 year old and his rivalry with Jimmy White. If you, you know, it's his, his first four titles were won against Jimmy White, which is full time Liverpool Newcastle won. Sorry to interrupt. Full time it is a goal. Joe Willock has equalised in stoppage time. One one Liverpool Newcastle. Sorry, Timmy. So his rivalry with Jimmy White was fascinating. I mean, he was the guy who really ultimately stopped Jimmy White, you know, getting over the line. Um, obviously, the D85, uh, Steve Davis and uh, Dennis Taylor, you know, um, historical night where I remember living in Cork at the time and staying up late into the night watching this and praying that the ball would go in eventually for, for Dennis Taylor. But Ronnie O'Sullivan is a huge loss, you know, this time around because he brings something different, you know, to, to the table. He, he's the guy that kind of lights up the arena. He's a bit like, you know, George Best or a Messi or Ronaldo in a football sense. He is that, just that, that, that spark. And I was very surprised to see him lose to Anthony McGill. I, I, I was really surprised. And he strikes me as a guy who, you know, on a good day is unbeatable, but it's kind of, you know, some days he's just not at it and just decides, you know, just it's it's not to be at it. But I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I don't watch every every frame. And, you know, I prefer when it gets to one table rather than the two tables. I, I just like the one table. And when it gets into the latter stages, um, as I said, I don't watch it all the time, but I do enjoy the snooker, uh, particularly when it's um, when there's some great games. One of the best games I remember, actually, was Stephen Hendry, as I said, who would be my favourite. Uh, he played O'Sullivan in in some uh, tournament, a challenge tournament, and he was leading best to 17. He was leading 8-2 or something, and Sullivan came back to 8-all, and he got a maximum break in the deciding, and I always remember to myself, like, that's what class is. You know, the ability to do it when you're struggling and pull out a maximum. So, yes, I enjoy it, John. I look forward to seeing you over the next few days. Timmy, do you, do you lament the place that snooker has in the world of sport nowadays, though? Back then, we had so little to watch. Uh, we, the, the sports lovers amongst us would have been able to rattle off the last 20-odd embassy world champions, whereas I, if you were to line up 20 of the most sports-obsessed fans, men, women, or children, and, and ask them right now who's the reigning world snooker champion or who won it two years ago, there would be very few that would be able to tell you who that person was. I do lament it, Dave, and it reminds me of, of fashion in many ways. It's cycles, you know, like the MC World title was was a big thing for so many years, as you say, it dominated sports, you know, in the media, and it's, it dominated our life at one point in time. Now, you know, like 
people don't really watch it as much. It doesn't have the same, you know, uh, interest, I suppose, from, from a fan's point of view. And that's because all the sports have taken over. Go back when, when Dennis Taylor beat Steve Davis. Munster and Leinster wouldn't get 300 people at an interprovincial game. You know, now they get 60,000 people or 50,000 people in the Aviva. So it goes in cycles. But I do, I, I do miss the the buzz of it because it's just now like, you know, whether they're playing in China, whether they're playing in the Middle East, or whether they're playing uh, in Sheffield, it's just another tournament. It's a bit like the darts now. I used to enjoy the darts at one point in time. That's just becoming a kind of same old, same old now. And sadly, I think that has happened, Snooker. I think, Dave, it's, it's just harder to uh, glamorise and change Snooker. It's It's... It's you know it's it's fifteen reds, six colours, and a cue ball. It's hard to make it um, any more interesting. You know what I mean? I I, I, love, I absolutely love the snooker shootout and things like that. To try to make it obviously, to um, try to do things like that. But I I think it's it's easier for it's easier for soccer. It's easier maybe for GA. It's easier to make a big show around it. I know they've done big entrances with the snooker and that. I, that's not saying I absolutely love snooker. Snooker is probably my second favourite sport. I love the drama of it. I've been to the Crucible three times. I've been to the UK Championship. Um, it's it's the, the most dramatic and nerve-wracking sport I think you can attend. And just, the, Timmy was talking about Ronnie. The thing about Ronnie is, Ronnie is must-see television because if you take your eyes off him for a second, anything could have happened. He could have, if you take your eyes off him for a couple of minutes, he could have knocked in a 147 or he could have mentally unravelled he could have uh, feathered a ball and nearly sat on a ball as he did last night at a, cru- a crucial time with only two or three frames to go that's what he brings to snooker he's just he's box office you want to watch because you're afraid you're going to miss something I absolutely love snooker I just think maybe it's it's struggled where other sports have been able to uh, maybe you know they've been able to been a bit more sexy in recent years maybe they're able to make them a bit more easy on the eye it's very hard to change what what snooker is, but I I absolutely love it for what it is. I think it's the most. I think it's outside of hurling. It's my favourite sport, and it's the most dramatic spectacle to watch. Eighteen million people watched the uh, Davis uh, Taylor final in nineteen eighty five, but snooker has suffered for the control that terrestrial television had on it in four channels. Uh, if you're living in Ireland back, if you're lucky enough in the eighties and the nineties, uh, you had the whatever the two BBC, ITV, and Channel Four. Um, and you'd spend hours watching it because there's nothing else much to watch. Whereas the Masters wasn't even on. Like you'd be lucky to get the Masters until about the eighties. So I think really the the loosening of terrestrial TV, the advent of, of of satellite television, has changed and turned everything on its head. And obviously we got more. Like would we if we had the chance to see. Like it was only after the Italian ninety that we got Italian football on Channel Four. But imagine we had the opportunity to see Diego Maradona or that Brazilian team of 1982 on TV every week. Of course we'd watch it. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Back then, there was so little choice that snooker was one of those fortunate sports that was in the right place at the right time and had a couple of really charismatic champions, the likes of Alex Higgins and Jimmy White and Dennis Taylor. And then you had, you know, the... The, the other extreme in, in Steve Davis, those types of characters, they just seem to have the ability to put a group of players together that brought a little bit of everything and there was no channel hopping and there was no second screen. You weren't on your phone and you weren't on Twitter and you were happy enough that you just had something to watch. I mean, I remember being absolutely devastated when Jimmy White lost the 94 final, uh, missing that black off at spot when you just thought, I cannot believe the entire country and the entire UK as well as watching this. Tonight is Jimmy's night. It's going to happen and as a 14 year old crying tears 
when Jamie missed that black. And I despised Stephen Henry at the time because he was the man who was breaking Jimmy's heart. Was it four finals he beat Jimmy in? And uh, it was nothing personal, but my God, I Steve, Steve Henry was a hate figure in our house. I hate him because I love Davis. It's a strange, it's a different reason. <laughs> but I don't watch snooker anymore, John, because there's just too many other things going on. Um, look, as a father of two as well, I simply don't have the time to sit down and watch, uh, you know, the best of 10, 11 or the best of a, a 23 snooker match who who does really whereas back in the day I would have not missed a frame um, but I guess with so many people their world has changed in that manner and it is the bite-sized chunks of sport that people are increasingly turning towards and that doesn't leave an awful lot of room for a five-day test match in cricket or somebody winning a snooker match 18-17 it simply takes too long and today's generation of sports lovers probably just don't have the time or the stomach for that uh, five three one and six. If you were to compare on O'Gar to Frank Lampard, Lampard rushed into the Chelsea job with no experience. O'Gar is pacing himself, says James in Cork. Football's never off the telly, so it takes up all the shelf space. Snooker loses out, says Gary in Rush. I wonder though, you touched on something there, Dave. Personalities matter. Like I remember that, like White, Higgins, Hendry, and and Davis as the foils for that in Formula One. I loved in the eighties Senna, and you had like Nigel Mansell as the foil, and Prost, and then you Schumacher and Hill. Uh, tennis had the same McEnroe, Connors. I, and Formula One, I find pretty boring now. And tennis, I'd find I, I love the brilliance of a Nadal and Federer and Murray and Djokovic that era. But I think personalities matter, and maybe that's something got to do with it, Timmy, as well. Personalities definitely matter, especially in we'll call it minority sports, because that, you know, in, in, in the sporting sense, snooker is a minority sport. So you know, Michael made a point about Ronnie O'Sullivan in box office, but you know, he's box office for the right reasons, and sometimes box office for the wrong reasons. But there's, you know, if you think of it, who else is a personality in, in snooker? You know, if you take Lewis Hamilton you know, in Formula One, who else is a personality? So if you don't have personalities who who, who crave attention from fans, Dave made a great point. You know, watching an 1817 final, you know, it could take two days. Like, people don't want that anymore. They want, you know, 80 minutes or 100 minutes or shorter stuff in a couple of hours in that sense. So, the lack of personalities, with the exception of Sullivan Snooker, the fact that there's more sport available. You know, you can watch now, you know, on your phone and your tablet or on television. You can watch sport from any part of the world at any time of the day. So the whole world has changed from the time we talked about the personalities, particularly in the 80s and the 90s. But snooker as a game, obviously it has 15 balls and and, and all the colours and the white ball. I think, Michael, most sports have, have you know, like hurling has hurlies and a slitter and football has a Gaelic football. So I think most sports have the same principles about it. But what snooker has had doesn't have it doesn't have a time limit. It's just, you know, you know, if you take Dave with two kids, it just goes on too long. So okay. no personalities, takes too long, not going to survive. We've got to leave it there. I'm sorry, Timmy McCarthy, Dave McIntyre and Michael Verney. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom on the Saturday panel on the review of the week this week on Off The Ball here on News Talk. Enjoy that sun, lads. Thanks a million, John. Okay. Cheers, John. Okay, this is Off the Ball Saturday on News Talk. Let's get a full time on the Liverpool-Newcastle game. It's ending in a draw at Anfield. Shane Pennington. Liverpool won, Newcastle won and Jurgen Klopp's side missed chance to climb back into the top four then after missed chances cost them dear against Newcastle. Mo Salah fired them into an early lead as the host dominated but Diego Jota, Mo Salah and Roberto Firmino all failed to kill the game off and after Callum Wilson had seen his late strike ruled out by VAR, substitute Joe Willock fired home an injury time equaliser. Liverpool won, Newcastle won. We're back after the break. The Saturday panel on Off the Ball. 
That was an OTB Podcast Network presentation. 